Testing, testing. Hello, and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Welcome back. Welcome to part two. We are going to pick up where we left off in part one and dive straight into the trial. The trial of OJ Simpson started on the 24th of January in 1995, just seven months after the brutal double murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman. The prosecution got off to a strong start, portraying Nicole as a terrified, vulnerable woman and Simpson as a violent husband. Using 911 call recordings, the ghost of Nicole rang out in the courtroom. You could have heard a pin drop. In one recording, she could be heard pleading with the operator. He's back. Please, he's OJ Simpson. He's going to beat the shit out of me. Throughout the duration of that 13 and a half minute call, Nicole's distress became a physical presence in the courtroom. In the background, a furious Simpson could be heard roaring about Nicole sleeping with another man, an incident that had happened after they had split up, an incident that Simpson only knew about because he was stalking Nicole at this point. His anger sent a message. If he couldn't have her, then nobody could. A second call was played to the jury, this time no words, just screams, and the sound of flesh hitting flesh. An officer took the stand to explain what happened following the call. He said upon arrival at the Simpson family home, he saw Nicole run from the bushes wearing just her underwear, her face beaten, screaming, he's going to kill me. The fear palpable, she cried that Simpson had guns in the house. The threat of death very real to her in that moment. At this point, the officer said Simpson emerged from the house in a bathrobe. He was calm, charming. The officer was reassured. After all, this was the guy off the television. There was no real threat here. Nevertheless, the altercation did need to be sorted out at the station, and even though he had been told that there were guns in the house, the officer allowed Simpson back inside to put some clothes on, which he did before quickly absconding, foreshadowing what would happen later in the murder case. Oh my goodness. It's so... How fucking stupid. It's just so frustrating how celebrity offers you so much that you can just rock up and be like yeah of course of course I'll just pop inside and get dressed I mean Nicole's rushed out in her underwear I doubt that she was allowed to just like go even though she's the victim in this oh it's just so frustrating how that that could have ended with that officer allowing Simpson back into the house where there were guns there Simpson could have grabbed a gun and come out and killed Nicole killed the officer yeah the officer as well yeah yeah ridiculous isn't it absolutely ridiculous And in that time he's gone back in, he's able to clean his hands up or clean up his clothes, whatever he needs to do. Or get rid of some evidence or something. Yeah, exactly. Pertain to that domestic violence You never know, yeah. Honestly, it's just frustrating and frustrating again and again and again with him that his charm and everything just allows him to do whatever he wants. I think it's so frustrating because it still happens. It happens probably more than it ever has now with celebrities being given special treatment in these kinds of cases. So, yeah, lessons haven't been learned, unfortunately. The prosecution presented further witnesses in relation to this specific incident and a picture of desperation and fear emerged. Shortly after the incident, Nicole had spoken to an acquaintance in the police, a friend of her husband's, asking him to talk to Simpson about his violence towards her. This man in turn convinced Nicole to just drop the charges and then told his supervisor that the case was closed. 
On the stand, this policeman did show regret and admitted that he hadn't thought about the situation from Nicole's point of view, saying he should have done more to protect and serve. Throughout the case, it was clear Simpson was given preferential treatment everywhere he went because people wanted to bask in the glow of his limelight. And, you know, that is what it's all about, what we were just talking about. Hmm. Nicole called the police eight times over Simpson's violence, and each time, even when she presented with very visible injuries, nothing was done. Simpson was only arrested once. His donations to the police fund, his parties with senior police and his willingness to autograph footballs for prizes at charity auctions had bought him immunity from the law and left Nicole with nowhere to turn. The jury were presented with photos of Nicole's injuries, testimony from call handlers and the police who attended the scene and from her sister who witnessed some of the abuse too. But the jury remained unmoved. After all, five of them answered in their questionnaires that they felt physical aggression was appropriate in marital relationships. And while Nicole had a popularity rating of five, Simpson had one of nine. A few slaps around the face were not going to change their mind. In fact, she probably deserved it. Some women need keeping in line by their man, don't they? And obviously this is, you know, Rachel makes a point here to say that she's absolutely talking from the perspective of some of the jurors here. That's not what she thinks and certainly not what what we think either. But yeah, I think particularly at that time, it probably was a case that some people just thought, well, it's a marriage, isn't it? You know, this is domestic violence. You can call it that. But this is a man just standing up to his wife and keeping her in check. This is normal. This is fine. This is allowed. The prosecution then presented their timeline. They had some impressive witnesses who could state specific timings of events based around the TV shows they were watching at the time. They could tell exactly when they heard the dog barking, when they heard Ron shout hey hey hey. They also presented Simpson's limo driver, new on the job and terrified of getting it wrong with such an important client. He stated that the white Bronco had definitely not been at the Simpson residence at 10.22pm when he'd turned up early to take Simpson to the airport on the night of the murders. He phoned his boss at 10.49pm to say that no one was answering at the house. Four minutes after guest Kaylin said he heard the noises outside of his guest house. At 10.55pm the limo driver reported seeing a tall African-American man walk to the front door of the house a minute before the Akita was found barking outside of Nicole's house. And remember, Simpson's house is just five minutes up the road from Nicole's house. At 11.01pm Simpson came out of the house with a black duffel bag that he refused to let the limo driver touch, claiming that he'd overslept. An alibi that couldn't ever be proven or disproven. As the driver pulled away from the house, he noticed that the white Bronco had suddenly appeared, poorly parked at the front of the gate. The limo driver was an excellent and undervalued witness, as he later also testified that he saw Simpson buy a rubbish bin at the airport and that the black duffel bag was never seen again. Was that Simpson getting rid of his blood-stained clothes? Or the murder weapon, perhaps? Neither were ever found. The prosecution then brought in their undisputable forensic evidence. This was their golden ticket to a conviction. They had more forensic evidence than most cases involving defendants on death row. They had reams of the stuff. They had the blood on the side of Simpson's car. This was Simpson's blood. This would have been easy enough for the defence to explain away. After all, we all get accidental cuts and blood is easily spread. But they also had blood inside the car. This blood was not only Simpson's, but also Ron Goldman's. 
that would be much harder to explain away, and that really was damning. Why would Ron Goldman's blood be inside Simpson's car? Because it's not like this is some sort of co-parenting relationship where sometimes he does give them a lift or, you know, would ever socialise with Nicole's friends or anything. There is no reason for anything to do with Ron Goldman being in that car. No. Let alone blood. No, absolutely. Even, like you say, DNA, but blood, no. There's no plausible explanation other than the one that we uh, are led to go towards. And then, of course, they had Simpson's socks found in his bedroom. Nothing suspicious there until testing showed the presence of blood from Simpson and Nicole on them. How could the defence justify not guilty plea now? And of course they had the gruesome trail of blood leading from the scene, like a horror version of Hansel and Gretel. Each of those blood droplets was a match to Simpson and they had photographs of seven cuts on his left hand to explain the origin. They had the blood on the back gate that had only a 1 in 57 billion chance of being from anyone other than Simpson. They had the footprints made in blood and on Nicole's back that were made by a very expensive and very elite type of shoe in a size 12, which was Simpson's shoe size. The print from the same shoe visible inside the Bronco. And again, that's damning because you're pretty much saying that's Simpson's foot. You know, that footprint is on the back of Nicole because in part one I talked about the killer effectively stamping on the back of Nicole, pulling her hair towards him while he slit her throat so deeply that you can see her spine through the front of of her throat. So, yeah, that's why the shoe print was there, and that shoe print is now in Simpson's car. And if it was a bog standard, you know, anybody wears these boots, or, you know, they're quite popular or something like that, but no, this is a rich man's shoe, and it's the one that he was wearing when that Bronco was parked up or, like, moved or whatever he's going to try and say. Yeah. It's it's just more and more and more, you know, how was he not convicted, isn't it? Is when you yeah. whenever you look at this. There was also the black knit hat found by Ron's body, which had hair inside that matched Simpson's, and on Ron's shirt there were also hairs consistent with Simpson. And then there was the pièce de résistance, the gloves, the blood soaked left glove found by Ron's body, and the right blood soaked glove with blood from Nicole, Ron and Simpson present on it and fibres from the fucking Bronco found by Mark Furman at the Simpson residence. So that left glove was found at Simpson's house, in the grounds of his house. The right glove was found at Nicole's. So, you know, these are a matching pair of gloves. The right one is at the crime scene. The left one is found in Simpson's home, essentially. And then, yeah, it's got Ron's blood on it, Nicole's blood on it, Simpson's blood on it, and fibres from the Bronco. So it's been in that car. It's little wonder the prosecution was feeling confident at this point and probably quite cocky too in the face of this overwhelming mountain of evidence. But actually it was this mountain of evidence that would prove to be their downfall. They didn't stop to consider how best to present the evidence and their sloppy presentation and long-winded expert testimony diluted any impact. This is the thing because you've just given us the the key and it's kind of like bam, bam, bam. But yeah, yeah, if you've got someone who's then taking ages to explain how they got to the point of testing that glove and then what they told you about the testing process and then what it means and one in a billion or one in whatever billion chance it's not got that impact that gravitas of bam 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 yeah you need to almost just throw it out there in five minutes 
and it would have probably been days worth of testimony. And of course, the prosecution had all the information about the jury that the defence had. So they knew that this was a working class jury. They worked manual labour jobs. They didn't read newspapers. They were perhaps unemployed or elderly and retired. They got their information largely from the tabloid TV. Only two jurors had college degrees, and so this jury would not have had the education in science to understand forensics. They needed clear and targeted explanations. And also there were no TV cop shows at the time explaining this kind of evidence and normalising it. DNA had only been used for the first time in court eight years previously. The prosecution needed to tread carefully, to put the science into digestible chunks, and to explain the importance of the evidence. But... Instead, they put forward an expert who spent hours and hours and hours explaining complex and irrelevant scientific hypotheses. The prosecution had lost their audience before they'd even got to the evidence. The mountains of forensic evidence went over the heads of the jury and counted for nothing. And Rachel wanted to make the point here that it's really hard to sort of talk about this jury and not sound like you're being snobby, like educationally snobby, that, you know, this is a very working class jury. Any that worked were in sort of blue collar jobs. They didn't really read newspapers. But we just have to kind of state those facts. The point is that this is a jury that isn't as educated as a normal cross section of that community. Um, And therefore, yeah, you know, that's fine, but it does mean that the prosecution need to tread carefully and need to break down the evidence into really what a thick person could understand is the only way I can explain it. (laughs) I can be snobby. (laughs) But the thing is, is is that it's not even that. The fact that you said that this evidence, the first time it had ever been used was eight years previously. If you, you can't expect somebody to really and, and like you said there was no tv shows that showed you like i feel like nowadays people watch loads of stuff like that if you said to them like oh we used luminol you'd kind of go oh okay i know what that is joe blogs anybody off the street would kind of probably have seen something where they talk about fingerprinting or if you don't know anything about it you're just gonna not know it like this and i i kind of feel like it almost wouldn't matter what level of education you have if you know, unless you're within that scientific field at that time, I don't know whether that many people would really have got it. Do you know, I, th- I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think you're right. It probably isn't about the intellect. It's about this is, they, they might as well have been talking Japanese because these were concepts and words and jargon that, that any lay person on the street isn't going to understand. So that was the issue. And I think what happens then is, as a human being, you just kind of, you just quickly shut off because you think, I don't understand any of this. So you zone out, don't you? And you're not really taking any of it in then. And some of it could have been a bit more basic in how it was explained, but it's too late then. They've they've switched off. Isn't it interesting as well, when we talked to Colin Sutton um, a few months back and he, we love him. And he was talking about how if you don't have DNA evidence nowadays, a jury will just kind of go, well, they they clearly didn't do it because you haven't proved yeah. me with DNA. And it's so fascinating that this is within the same life, lifetime of two of the same person nowadays and then. The same person could have been on the jury there or on a jury today. And the difference in how evidence is presented is just, yeah, it's incredible what science has progressed in this time. Yeah. And you're right, I kind of take for granted the general public's and my own understanding of some of these things. We only really know about it because of TV shows that we've watched. 
I would say largely. That's why we know what Luminol is, for example. I mean, we're a bit different, us and our audience, because we're more into true crime. But I'd say, yeah, most people do have a a kind of pretty decent understanding of, of some of the techniques that are used in forensic science purely through television. So it is a different world hmm. 30 years on. The defence did an excellent job at rebutting the prosecution's case. They went with quite an eclectic approach. They criticised the timelines, cast out on how the evidence had been collected, calling it shoddy, and labelled the whole sorry case a police conspiracy. They even threw in a few wild theories about who the real killer might have been. They successfully shifted the case from being about murder to putting the LAPD on trial. I suppose they don't really have to do anything apart from make the jury doubt so yeah, that's what it's about. So yeah. yeah, if if the jury's already if the jury's already a little bit confused, and then you can kind of go, let's make sure that because you can't say with beyond reasonable doubt, then that's all they have to do is frustratingly clever. Yeah, it was a clever strategy, and and obviously, as we all know, one that paid off. As far as the domestic violence was concerned, the defence jumped on the lack of evidence. Nicole's diary outlining the 60 or so occasions of violence was not for the jury's eyes, and so the defence could show ignorance to research patterns of domestic violence that suggest women put up with it for two years before they even report it. The defence suggested, as Simpson claimed, that they had a happy marriage, and that these incidences of the police being called out were just blips. They even had the audacity to claim that Nicole had hit Simpson, but that he had refused to press charges. The dead can't defend themselves, and so Simpson's claims were the ones that had impact. And this was a jury that was inclined to believe him, because people good at football couldn't possibly also be wife killers. The forensic case would be harder to criticise, and here is where the DNA expert and the forensic expert earned every penny of their retainer. Some of the criticisms were justified, and these made the whole operation look like a shit show of incompetent policing. The defence questioned the evidence collectors on how often they changed their gloves, something so routine it would be so hard to answer accurately, and they suggested contamination of evidence. One of the police officers had confiscated a pair of shoes from Simpson, and instead of taking them straight to the evidence locker, he took them home overnight and left them in his car. This gets worse because another officer stored blood-related evidence in plastic bags in a hot truck for hours, an action which of course degraded the quality of the samples. The defence also criticised the collection of the blood from the gate, which was collected three weeks after the murder, which is pretty fucking appalling to be fair. They claimed that the blood on the gate had actually been wiped off and then replaced with a sample of Simpson's blood by a nefarious police officer backing this up with a photo so grainy that the gate could hardly be seen. Do you know what, though? You can't say it wasn't because you didn't yeah, go and do it for ages. Doubt again. And listen to the next bit because this this is crazy, but again, it's fair that this does plant a seed of reasonable doubt within the jury. So, when they couldn't question the accuracy of the blood evidence, they had to try a different tact, and they went with conspiracy and planted evidence. They questioned the amount of blood taken as a sample from Simpson, adding up all of the tests that had been completed on it and finding that it was one and a half millilitres short. So obviously a sample of blood is taken from Simpson to be analysed in the lab and compared to these blood samples at the crime scene. So I don't know how many millilitres they've taken, but you know they've taken a sample and then they've used that to test on in the lab. But when they add it all up, they're like, well, there's one and a half millilitres missing. 
This amount of missing blood, they claimed, had been taken by faceless police officers and planted. The blood trail? Planted. The blood on the socks? Planted. The blood on and in the white bronco? Planted. That one and a half millilitres of blood sure went a long way. Mm. The defence ripped the bottom out of every piece of forensic evidence in such a way that the jury did not pick up on how ridiculous some of the suggestions were. At one point, a conspiracy involving seven separate police officers would have been needed to create the staged crime scene that the defence painted. But this didn't seem a stretch to the jury, who passively accepted the account of errant police. And then there was Mark Furman... Furman was a gift from Defence Heaven, wrapped in the finest paper and with a bow tied neatly on the top. It was serendipity that the one police officer they could prove beyond doubt to be a racist, misogynistic scumbag had found the most compelling piece of evidence, the glove at Simpson's residence. It was also fortuitous that Furman had actually visited the Simpson residence before on one of the previous domestic violence calls. The lawyers were chomping at the bit to get their hands on Furman and they called witness after witness to demonstrate that he was a racist, that he disapproved of mixed race relationships, that he stopped drivers unnecessarily if there was a black man and a white woman in the car, that he had painted swash stickers on the locker of a colleague. He was odious and the culture of the LAPD allowed and even encouraged him to carry on with these behaviours. He also was a frequent user of the N-word, and the defence had tapes to prove this. This was a word that the prosecution did not want to be heard in the courtroom. Darden, in particular, knew the racial trauma tied up within that word, and he knew that should the defence use that word, it would make the case about race, not about the murders of two innocent people. If they allowed the defence to use the word, it would speak to racial loyalties. Either you're with the man or you're with the brothers, Darden had stated when trying to get the word excluded. When a short extract of the tapes was played and the N-word clearly rang out in the courtroom, Furman became the embodiment of the LAPD. He suddenly represented every racist and brutal act the LAPD had ever enacted on the black population of LA, and these were legion. It took very little effort from here on in for the defence to construct a theory around Furman. A man bitter and furious at a black man in a relationship with a white woman. A further insult to his sense of white pride was that this woman was being beaten by said black man. A fateful opportunity presented itself to him when he called to the murder of this woman. The idea of the stitch-up coming to him, the defence claimed, when he spotted the second glove at the initial crime scene. They claimed he swiped it and somehow managed to get fibres from Simpson's locked car into the glove and then took it to Simpson's home before finding it, which is frankly ridiculous. At this point, Simpson could have had a cast iron alibi for all Furman knew, so this whole charade would have been a very risky and totally pointless waste of time. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Because if this was written into a crime novel, we wouldn't believe it. Yet the jury didn't question it, which probably tells us quite a lot about the quality of policing that they have been subjected to in their lifetimes. But yeah, yeah, to kind of say that he has seen both of the gloves at Nicole's home at the crime scene and thought, right, I've got an idea here. I'm going to take one of those gloves and plant it in Simpsons in the grounds of his house and contaminate it. Yeah, and all the while, Simpson could have had, he genuinely could have oh, had a cast iron alibi. he could have been on the alibi. telly, on a live TV he show He could have been on something. TV, on a, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Oh. And it would have been just such a dangerous and risky waste of time, so just don't buy it. But the problem is, is that Furman was such an absolute douchebag. 
like his behaviors and the fact that he was so racist you can then also understand that yeah actually whilst obviously he didn't do any of the planting the evidence and stuff he probably was a bit pissed off that this was a black man having a relationship with a white yeah. woman because he was that sort of horrible racist person and yeah the policing at that time was horrendous like the police force in general public opinion of the police force so you can understand where the jury would go actually makes sense he could have done that it you should then be thinking could have doesn't mean did and we we talked in part one about the context around this so just two or maybe now three years prior you had the race riots in los angeles following uh, the murder of Rodney King. So Exactly. Yeah, and that I mean, was, it was like a heightened sense. People. It was it was yeah. when news was kind of, you know, like the whole thing of the, the, the car chase with the really slow car chase being on the telly. This was the kind of the dawn of immediate people seeing the immediate news and the the immediate aftermath and yeah. being able to view what had happened. And it, equally, at the same time, you're right, they're seeing everything with their own eyes. And, you know, it's it's more impactful when you see it real time rather than have a condensed report a few hours or days after the incident. So, yeah, I think there was a heightened sense of anything's possible in this city at the moment, particularly where the police is concerned. The Gloves went on to have a further key moment in the defence case, possibly the most iconic moment of the whole trial. The defence claimed the Gloves weren't even Simpsons. They were a very rare pair of Gloves. To maintain his image, Simpson had the best of everything. Only 200 pairs of these Gloves had been sold across the whole of the USA, and an even smaller number of these were extra large. The prosecution found receipts that showed Nicole had bought two pairs of these gloves, but the defence claimed they were too small so they couldn't have been Simpsons. Simpson had hands like boats, and if they didn't fit, it added weight to the planted evidence notion. Clark didn't want Simpson to try them on. She knew that they wouldn't fit because the leather had been warped by being soaked in blood. She also knew that Simpson would have to wear latex gloves underneath because these gloves were still evidence, and that would further impact how they would fit. And finally, she knew that Simpson was a competent actor, and even if they did fit, he could make out that they didn't. I think that's the key thing, isn't it, as well, is there's there's all these reasons why they're probably not going to anyway. And then he's going to make he's out gonna... like he's some fucking mime artist yeah. trying to put on child's gloves. And you can, you can, anybody can do that, can't you? You can like squeeze yeah, of course you can. and like stretch. Oh, it's so <sighs> difficult to do. Oh, it's it is yeah. so frustrating because you could go get the same gloves in an extra large but then the the defense is gonna be like but it's not these ones yeah they you have to use gloves. those gloves you have to that's fair that's fair i think but you're right mm. yeah i mean can you imagine you know these are supposedly extra large gloves and they probably looked minuscule they probably look like a medium, I didn't know, yeah. yeah i didn't know that it was that they had been warped that the leather had been warped by the blood and probably to do with the testing as well. There was quite a lot of testing done on them as well, I'm sure. I read somewhere. Yeah. But especially because he had to wear something underneath, like a latex glove on top as yeah. well, which does make it, I imagine, would make it hard to put on leather because that's going to get, I don't know what the right word is, but that's going to be I, I know like what you bubbing. mean. It's, there's going to be friction. friction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a fetishist's best fantasy, oh, isn't crikey. it? Latex Let's and leather. Let's stop saying it now, otherwise we'll become fetish yeah. icons. <laughs> 
Oh, if only. So the defence was sly. Taking Darden to one side, one of the lawyers challenged him. If you don't get him to put on the gloves, we will. And in one fateful and ill-thought-out moment, Darden suggested that in full court Simpson put them on. The defence must have been beside themselves with glee. What commenced was an Oscar-winning performance of Simpson tugging and pulling the gloves on, desperately manipulating his fingers into the gloves, tamping down the finger crotch. Rachel said she couldn't think of a better way to sort of explain that sort of webbed bit. Yeah, where that's the, a good way to put it. I don't know yeah, what that's called, kind but of finger crotch is absolutely right. Works. It works. In an ever-so-earnest attempt to get the gloves on. But like the ugly sisters with the glass slipper, the gloves were too small. And Simpson, now with a smirk on his face, displayed to the jury, the media and the prosecution that these gloves just couldn't possibly have been his, as he couldn't even get them past the heel of his palm. And that cemented the police conspiracy in the minds of the jury. The prosecution must have had sinking hearts at this moment, knowing that they couldn't win. By the end of the 253-day trial, the jury were tired. For nearly a year, they'd not been allowed to watch TV, other than pre-approved films from Blockbuster. They'd not been allowed to see loved ones, to sleep in their own beds. They'd missed special occasions like birthdays, weddings, and even the mundane things like cooking their own food. They were fed up and they wanted it to be over. Over the course of the trial, tensions had been high between the jury members, with conflict so contentious that the judge had had to intervene on more than one occasion. A strong summation by the prosecution should have been enough to refocus the jury on the key elements of the case at this point. The strong evidence, the escalation of the domestic violence, the controlling behaviour of the defendant, the ridiculousness of the proposed extent of the LAPD conspiracy. But this was not a jury who took notes and it was not a jury who had the mental capacity to take on board anything else. They'd already made their minds up. The defence wheeled out their star attorney, Johnny Cochran, an impeccable decision. His use of the soundbite, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, and his comparison of Furman to Hitler was more engaging than a restatement of dull scientific evidence. It is really difficult because um, until I read, if in brackets, I did it, this is how I would do it, um, basically I did it by OJ Simpson, all I really remembered and knew about this case was the glove and that that real spectacle and that well clearly there's a there's doubt there there's clearly doubt there sort of thing Um, because that is what you hear it's what you see it's what everybody remembers is if the glove don't fit you must acquit and that's quite catchy as well yeah and and then you read the book and you kind of go oh gosh and he came out Cochrane came out with a few of those rhymes for different mantras that he would chant at the jury and yeah because he knows that that's how the human mind works you get something catchy it gets in their head and then you've got them yeah. you like hook them in a little yeah. bit and then reel them in he's he was really really good at what he did in a final flourish to the jury cochran made it clear that a vote against simpson would be a vote for the police a vote for racism and a carte blanche for the LAPD to carry on with their racist policing of the population, where innocent black people would never be able to expect fair treatment. It was compelling. It was contrived. And it was so far away from the point of the case that it was offensive. But above all, it was convincing. Now, juries in the USA have different rules to those in the UK. In the UK, individual jury decisions are kept secret and it's an offence to talk about anything that happens in a jury room. The only thing that comes out of a jury room is the verdict. 
Not so in the USA, where jurors write books and where their faces have been seen on camera. The initial straw poll taken showed that 10 voted for acquittal. What then took place was exactly what the defence wanted, a jury questioning the evidence. Why wasn't there more blood around the glove? Why didn't Simpson have more marks on his body to tie in with the defensive wounds on the victims? Why, if the glove came off in a fight, wasn't it inside out? And most poignantly, why were the police so convinced it was Simpson without looking into any other suspects? The jury's discussion of the evidence demonstrated only that they didn't understand the forensics and hadn't really taken on board the weight of it, making reference only to the blood on the gate. The prosecution case had been dismissed, ignored, set aside. In addition to this, the jurors knew that when they walked out of that court, everyone in their lives would know what decision they had made in that room. With a mostly black jury, they would have to return to their communities where they would have faced criticism and ostracism if the juice had gone to prison. They would also be denying the racial injustice done to them, their families and their communities, by the LAPD. The defence had succeeded in putting the LAPD on trial. One member of the jury was overheard saying, We've to protect our own. The two holdouts were as exhausted as anyone and knew that this jury was not going to change their mind for anything. They knew that a hung jury could lead to a mistrial, which could mean Simpson had the charges dropped against him anyway. There really seemed like no point in not giving in to the majority and getting to go home and sleep in their own bed that night. The jury took less than four hours to return the verdict of not guilty and in a matter of minutes Simpson was uncuffed and allowed to go home. It's so mad. Almost a year on trial and less than four hours. Four hours of deliberation. They'd not made notes. And yeah, it was, you know, straight back with not guilty. And I remember that verdict being delivered live in this country, in the UK. It was a massive deal. So God knows what it must have felt like to be in America at that time. But here, yeah, it was huge. And I remember the... Um, jury four person reading out the verdict. It was like wow, and yeah, it was it was still a, it was just a massive shock that he'd gotten off because I think everybody thought yeah he's done this and he's gotten away with it. This is the problem though is that anybody out of that courtroom would see that because they'd have the time to digest the information properly and also were probably given condensed version so today the jury heard evidence from this blood analyst and they said xyz and actually that's what the jury needed to receive but they didn't get so everyone knew that he did it but the jury who were making that decision were just overwhelmed and swamped with all this like kind of noise they'd been in a bubble for yeah nearly a year um I mean, I can't imagine what that was like for them to not be able to sleep in their own home, to miss out on all those special occasions and events. They were allowed, I think Rachel made a note to say they were allowed conjugal visits once a week. You know, that was planned in for them. That's Uh, so gross as well. inhumane, really. The the judges told me we can do this right now. Come on in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so the case should have ended there, but it didn't. While the criminal charges had been resolved now, the racial divides in America grew deeper, with many white people furious that Simpson had, in their eyes, gotten away with murder. Ron's family filed a civil case for wrongful deaths against Simpson just a few months after the trial had ended. This would circumvent the double jeopardy issue, but was virtually unheard of in American legal history, 
And in the case of a criminal acquittal, it was almost unique that it was filed. I think it's more common now, but yeah, it was quite a big deal back then. The civil case would not end with Simpson going to prison, of course. Instead, it could only bring down a ruling of a financial nature. And because of this, the burden of proof would be much lower. Instead of reasonable doubt, the evidentiary standard would be the most likely explanation. The prosecution didn't have to prove mens re, guilty mind, that the act was intentional, only that the actions of the defendant brought about the deaths of the victims. A further important difference for this case was the location of the court. While the criminal court was in downtown LA, where the jury pool was predominantly black, the civil case took place in Santa Monica, where the jury pool was mostly white. This case carried little of the drama of the criminal case. There was still media attention, but by this point the country was somewhat fatigued by it all, and so no cameras were allowed in court. The media relied on journalists inside the court to select the most interesting content. The prosecution were volunteers on a no-win-no-fee basis, and so were eager to get to the point quickly, and to not repeat the long-drawn-out proceedings that had gone before them in the criminal trial. The defence, a completely different team, had none of the charisma or ego of the criminal dream team. The judge, a ruthlessly efficient man, would take no shenanigans from either side, and from the outset ruled that the Furman racism material had no relevance on the case, meaning the defence had to strategise a different tactic. The judge also stated that Simpson had to testify, as he was no longer protected by the Fifth Amendment, and this was interesting when he testified. Oh, okay. So, so he's not protected because he has had a previous trial. Uh, well, I think it's just that the judge can rule in this instance. Actually, we're going to force you to testify. Okay. You don't. You can't invoke the Fifth Amendment mm-hmm. like you did in the criminal trial. Um. So I guess it comes down to the judge whether that is allowed or not. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? The difference between the two courts and how. The defence and the prosecution were set up and planned. Really, really interesting. And quickly, because I think it was only seven months from the murders of Nicole and Ron to when the criminal trial started. So, you know, there were these huge teams. And we talked in part one about OJ's defence team costing him five million dollars. And that's 30 years ago. That would be like 10, 15 million now. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of people working on it, but yeah, they didn't have much time. So it is interesting the different tactics that they were able to employ and the experts that they were able to bring in and the um, the research that they were able to conduct amongst the jury. Yeah, and the approval ratings even of Nicole and, and OJ. It's crazy that they went to that much effort, but it paid off. The prosecution had a strong case with all the forensic evidence from the criminal case and they'd been given a dress rehearsal of what would and wouldn't work in front of a jury. They also had time to collect more evidence, for example photographs that showed Simpson wearing the very rare shoes that had caused the footprints at the crime scene. Shoes that Simpson when called to the stand denied owning because they were quote ugly ass. But Photos came forward subsequently of him wearing these shoes. I think 30 different photos. So again, you know, so damning. But he, he he's in court and saying, no, I'd never own them. No evidence is presented really to say that he did. That's literally and yeah, I didn't like own you. them because they were ugly ass. You'd say that. Look, Mark's clearly yours. I possibly would, no, those yeah. are ugly yeah, ass I shoes. I would never wear you those would definitely Clark say shoes. That. I probably would, yeah. 
The defence chose to victim shame Nicole, portraying her as a party girl who was out of control and violent towards her husband. They painted Simpson as a beleaguered husband, a man trying desperately to keep his family together. In front of a white jury, the victim shaming of a white woman post-divorce didn't go down well. And once again, Simpson on the stand gave the prosecution everything they needed when his astronomical ego could not cope with being painted as the bad guy. He denied ever hitting Nicole, despite photos to the contrary, and stated that she would be the one to hit him, although he never wanted to press charges because he just wanted them to move on. But despite constantly presenting himself as a victim, he was furious when questioned about an article that painted him as someone who would beg his wife to take him back. So he kind of wanted his cake in and to eat it. You know, he wanted to sort of say, I'm the victim, I'm the weak one in this relationship, she abused me. But when they then actually kind of pander to that and say, yeah, you were weak, he, he flips out and he's like, fuck off. I wasn't weak, I, I was a man. I beg her to come back to me. I wouldn't beg her, yeah, that, prick. Yeah, he. this is the problem. He wants to put on one image, but then he's like, oh, hang on a second, that doesn't fit with what I want to do other side. Yeah, his, 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 his mm-hmm. ego is getting in the way. All in all, he damned himself with his own words, which was what the lawyers in the initial trial were afraid of, and rightly so, it would prove. The defence had one last shot by presenting Simpson as a man so physically damaged by professional football that he could barely walk, let alone run away from a crime scene, and they said he was far too damaged by arthritis to be able to kill two people at once. This illusion was shattered, however, when a video of him training with the Navy SEALs in preparation of an upcoming film role was presented by the prosecution. The video was filmed just weeks before the murders took place and showed Simpson running, wearing a black knitted hat and holding a knife to the throat of a woman. It was like watching a How to Murder video. Which is it's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, he's... His defence of painting him as this, yeah, this vulnerable, weak... Oh, he's so yeah, feeble. feeble. Um, yeah. Not the guy that once was, you know, in his sporting prowess days. He's mm-hmm. weak now, he's old, he's damaged, he's arthritic. And then you see him training with Navy SEALs. Can't even walk, let alone run. It's, <laughs> yeah. You know, it really was oh. done. It's just embarrassing, isn't it, really? It is, and, and to this day, nobody can understand why that video wasn't shown in the criminal trial. No one can answer that question. When considering their verdict, the jury in the civil trial at least gave a decent amount of time to their deliberations, taking nearly a week before returning a guilty verdict and directing Simpson to pay $33.5 million to the families, and that was based on his projected future earnings. Given that Simpson was now a pariah in the show business world, he was never going to have a chance to pay that. And to this day, apparently he's only paid $132,000. I mean, it's it's still a win, isn't it, for the Goldman family? Because it it's a guilty verdict, albeit in a civil trial, but it is a guilty verdict and there's some culpability there. Um, but yeah, it's they were never going to see that money. The verdict also helped to heal some societal wounds. Now, there was on record a conclusion stating that Simpson was responsible for the deaths, and while he wouldn't face the death penalty this time, he would never again be a rich man. White America felt some sense of justice had finally been meted out, and Ron and Nicole finally had justice too. Now, there are people out there who still believe that O.J. Simpson didn't commit these murders. There are still some facts of the case that don't quite add up. One theory is that Simpson's oldest son Jason was responsible. 
This theory forms the basis of the book OJ is Innocent and I Can Prove It by William Deere. Jason was seven when OJ and Nicole started dating and it's possible that he blamed her for breaking up his parents' marriage. Jason had a troubled childhood, experimenting with alcohol, cocaine and ecstasy from the age of 14. He also had a history of mental illness, with three recorded suicide attempts and a criminal history including assault with a deadly weapon. Indeed, he had attacked at least one of his girlfriends with a knife, and he had also attacked his boss with a knife. This had led to a diagnosis of intermittent rage disorder, which manifested in violent outbursts, and he also had blackouts and heard voices, and potentially had seizures. His diary demonstrated a very troubled mind with the presence of three different voices, and a clear anger towards anyone who hurt his loved ones. In terms of motive, it is very possible that Simpson Sr. was very vocal about his anger towards Nicole, and that perhaps Jason, who clearly had a problem with women, absorbed this knowledge into his troubled mind, and when push came to shove, took his anger out on his stepmom. And you could understand that this could be a viable theory, because then OJ would want to protect his son, and wouldn't, you know, he he would at least be able to defend himself, and he's got that charm and charisma to to get the team together his son wouldn't necessarily have had that so he wouldn't he would perhaps be willing to put himself through the trial and that sort of thing knowing he'd be able to come out the other side it's plausible yeah i i thought exactly the same i thought mm. you know if 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 jason was guilty and had done it you know out of the two men standing trial who's going to stand the best chance a uh, world-renowned celebrity mm-hmm. charming cold cool calculated or a bit of a kid you know from what was a really troubled upbringing um of course it was going to be oj simpson so yeah there is credence to that argument also the black hat found at the scene while it did match the hair samples given by simpson hair samples don't hold the same specificity as dna and there is a theory that they could have also matched jason and jason was never considered as a suspect so he never gave samples to be tested There are also photos of Jason wearing an identical looking hat. And you may borrow your family members' hats. That's quite common and normal. Yeah, me and my dad are always swapping hats. Not. Secondly, a knife was. You're so weird. It's genuinely not normal. Of course, it's normal. If you're out and about. If you lived in the same home. Yeah, I get it. I get it. (laughs) I wouldn't expect you to drive over to his to swap hats and then go home. Drive 130 miles. Yeah. Um, Secondly, a knife was found in a storage locker owned by Jason, which met the description of the murder weapon. However, as this was discovered by the author of the aforementioned book, it was never tested forensically, and Jason was a chef, so a knife in storage isn't too unusual. Additionally, there were 15 fingerprints found at the scene that were unidentified, and the blood and skin found under Nicole's nails didn't match Simpson's DNA. It's important to remember that while familial matches are fairly common now, so under modern DNA testing we could probably tell whether the DNA matched a relative of Simpson, in the 1990s DNA testing for forensic cases was still in its infancy, and so the science might not have been able to make a match to Jason, even if it had been tested. If indeed Jason was the killer, it would make some sense that he would flee to his father's house once he'd committed the murders, which could explain why evidence was found there. It's also possible that OJ went to the scene of the crime to help his son cover up the murders, which would explain his DNA being there, although there was never evidence of a second person found at the scene. 
It would also make sense that Simpson already knew about the deaths and so didn't ask the police how Nicole had died during that phone call in part one. And it kind of makes sense that Simpson would want to protect his son, as you said, Bethan, and would therefore stand trial. It could also explain why Simpson didn't have any marks on his body, and no one was looking at Jason to see if he did. Simpson did have some marks, but not really consistent with the defensive wounds that were present on Ron and Nicole. However, that being said, if you're the weapon, if you're the person holding a blade, and these are two people who are just completely taken unawares, you may not have defensive wounds. Definitely you would expect to see their blood on you, um, and the cuts to the hand would make sense, but you wouldn't necessarily have defensive wounds, so it doesn't, it doesn't always really follow. mean either way, yeah, does you it? you are right. No. But we can't hide from the fact that no definitive evidence has ever been found to conclusively link Jason to the murders, while there has been conclusive evidence of Simpson at the scene of the crime. And while Jason had a general history of violence towards women, Simpson had a specific history of violence towards Nicole, which seems the more compelling argument. A second theory comes from Simpson himself and is presented in his book, If I Did It, which you've mentioned, Bethan, and also in a subsequent interview that he gave to the Fox TV network. In this hypothetical explanation of how he might have committed the crimes, he claimed that he and a man called Charlie had gone to the home of Nicole, whereupon they'd gotten into an argument with her. Simpson goes on to describe Nicole falling down during the argument and then says that Ron started doing karate moves on him. He then grabs a knife from Charlie and then blacks out before coming to a few minutes later and seeing blood everywhere as well as the bodies of Nicole and Ron. In the interview with Fox, Simpson describes remembering and kind of uses that word quite a bit, which is a strange word to use when you're creating this kind of a hypothetical account. Oh, the whole thing is just so bizarre. I mean, talk to us a little bit about this book, Bethan, because you've read it, haven't you? I have. I mean, is it an entire book of basically I did it, but I didn't do it? Kind of. So, So it's basically if I did it, which I didn't, but if I did it, here's what might have happened which mm. is just a bizarre thing to do at the best of times anyway but especially when you've been found guilty in a civil case fair enough you were found innocent at the main trial but it's it's just very very odd and i'm sure you're going to go on to sort of say but it's not coherent so charlie no. is is a made-up person, is a real person, is sometimes him. Like, he's, he sometimes is mm. Charlie when he's talking. Um, this, is a, this is a hypothetical situation, but this is also a real person, but he's also not. It's just, it's just very, very, very odd. And it, it always kind of strike, it struck me when I first read the book and when I've read it again and again. It's just a very strange thing to do, to kind of go with why like if I did it here's how I would have done it it's just mm. it's it's weird isn't it and also it's just even if you strip everything else back it's just incredibly poor taste that he's profiting from incredibly about so, yeah. the deaths of Ron and Nicole and he's got two kids with Nicole and yeah none of it makes any sense you're right and yeah that the, the interview that he gave to Fox was an extremely confused account um and as you said Simpson refers to Charlie in the third person he then switches to talking about the event from Charlie's perspective in the first person 
and these rambling, semi-incoherent verbalisations are fairly characteristic of Simpson's speech, which can be seen in the trial videos. He often finds it difficult to keep to the point, and he seems to have little awareness of these curious speech peculiarities. These could be characteristic of a brain disease, which we will come back to in a moment. Simpson is also noted to laugh throughout the interview when describing the murders, which of course is an extremely bizarre and insensitive thing to do, and also, you know, you have to consider the hurts that that would have caused to Ron and Nicole's families. And again, like we've said before, and I, I think I said in part one, people react to shock and, and things happening in a funny way. And actually to laugh when you're told about somebody being killed is, whilst probably really horrific at the time, unfortunately can be a natural shock reaction. But this is way after so you're not still in shock. You're not laughing because you you have no idea how to deal with what you're being told. It's it's nothing like that. It's not that he's he's in shock and he's having a f- strange reaction. It's like this is ages later. Like you and you put on this persona of being this charming acting actor. Like why are you not able to then act properly? Like he, the whole thing's so weird. It is a, weird. Is the word for it? Absolutely. Simpson was also incredibly self-pitying in the interview, making out that he was the real victim in his relationship with Nicole, and he said that she started every fight. Some have hypothesised that Charlie was a voice in Simpson's head. Others believe that Charlie is an alter ego of his. Who knows? Now, a less popular theory is that a serial killer murdered Nicole and Ron. Glenn Rogers was convicted of two murders, but was a suspect in many others. Rogers claimed that Simpson had hired him to break into Nicole's house and steal some jewellery, and that Simpson had said he might have to kill Nicole while doing it, as you would. Rogers was working as a house painter in the area of Nicole's house at the time of the murders, and he did provide details of the crime, although it's unclear whether any of these details were already in the public domain. He also managed to draw a knife that he claimed he used, and while this did match the injuries to both Nicole and Ron, the actual murder weapon was never found, and so it can't be confirmed whether it was actually a good match. This, to me, and Rachel, basically says the same. It just seems like a bored man in prison trying to get that last ounce of notoriety for himself, doesn't it? Yeah, and the theory with him... It's never really stuck with me, to be honest with you. It's always been one that I just think is, yeah, it's just so often these people who've got nothing to lose, but nothing to gain either, but they're just on death row. Well, they may as well just say some other random stuff. They might get a visit. Yeah, might get some journalists interested in them. Yeah, exactly. Some column inches, yeah, and some trauma for the families of their victims. Mm. Yeah, which is obviously they just thrive on that. Yeah. A final theory is that Nicole and Ron were murdered by a Colombian drugs cartel, which is equally as preposterous. This was a theory mentioned at trial by the defence, and it was due to the vicious nature of the neck wound on Nicole that it was brought up. This type of injury is known as a Colombian necktie, where the throat is slit so widely and deeply this is grotesque, that the tongue is pulled through the gaping wound. Oh, I did know that, but it doesn't matter how often, like, I knew it before, it's still so disgusting to hear. I didn't know that. Oh, that's horrible. That that isn't what happened to Nicole, exactly, Um, but it is possible under this theory that the killers were interrupted by that dog barking and so had to make do with just a vicious throat slitting. 
This theory was supported only by the friend of Nicole, Faye Resnick, who claimed that Nicole was taking part in drug orgies and that she owed money to a number of dealers. Although it is quite a step to go from having an orgy on drugs to pissing off the cartel so much that they want you dead and mutilated. And this, again, was completely dismissed as irrelevant as drug gangs don't tend to use knives in murders for one and they just don't tend to visit residential areas to exact their revenge you know it's just yeah it's of course that didn't happen of course it's difficult to look at criminal cases as true crime fans as we expect perfection and we expect every loose end to be tied up we expect eyewitnesses to be credible and confident. Crimes aren't like that from a police stance and from a legal stance too. Crimes are messy. There is always unexplained evidence that is probably unrelated. There are always gaps in evidence and DNA is never 100%, but this isn't what CSI has led us to believe. In fact, this CSI effect has been cited as a problem in many modern cases where juries expect legal cases to be as straightforward as TV shows and it has led to many acquittals in cases where there is strong evidence for a conviction. In this case, the CSI effect wasn't an issue in the initial trial as the famed show had not made an impact by this point. In fact, we can talk about the forensic evidence being so new that the jury didn't really understand the science or know what to do with it It's only now, 30 or so years after the crime, that the internet has given rise to so many conspiracy theories based on the normal and expected loose ends that are a typical part of a criminal case. Occam's razor states that the most straightforward explanation is usually the correct one, and in this case the most straightforward explanation is that Simpson was the murderer. A further internet theory about the crimes is less conspiracy and more based in scientific knowledge, and it's a theory that Simpson himself has mentioned, although he was not linking this idea to the murder specifically. In the 1980s, when Simpson played most of his football matches, little care or attention was given to the physical impact of the sport. American footballers wear helmets and padding, so it was assumed to be a safer sport than rugby. However, with the advent of more sophisticated scanning technology and an increase in violent crimes committed by professional sports players, specifically those within the NFL, for example Aaron Hernandez and Kevin Ware, there has been much more research completed into the impact of repeated head trauma on subsequent behaviour. Yeah, and this is something, like you said, back in the 80s, wasn't really even thought about. And even though it was kind of like these men would retire and people kind of knew that they'd had head injuries, it wasn't it wasn't really like properly investigated for a long time, was it? No, I don't I don't think it was properly recognised, let alone thorough investigation. And yeah, you know, to become a pro footballer with a chance of playing in the extremely lucrative NFL, boys had to start young and they had to be prepared to take their knocks and get back up. And there is a lot of pressure for players to carry on playing even after a hard takedown, pressure to report no injuries in case they get benched for a game, and encouragement to get back to the field even against medical advice to show that they are hard. Repeated concussions on the brain can be hugely damaging, especially to the developing brain. In a study in 2017 on the brains of 202 deceased football players, 87% showed a degenerative brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalitis. Encephalopathy, for fuck's sake. Rachel literally put, I hope Mark has to say this. Encephalopathy. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. 
It took me about 28 goes. And Rachel said, I really hope Mark has to say this. Um, <laughs> Got there in the end. So, But that is incredible. So 87% of those 202 football players that they studied. And that's quite a, that's quite a niche kind of, t- of a, like a, a sample, isn't it? Like football players. Um, and they have this degenerative brain disease. Wow. Yeah, and this is an illness that has been linked with symptoms such as disinhibition, memory disturbances, low mood, behavioural symptoms, impulsivity, violent mood swings and mental illnesses. A correlation showed that the longer a person had played football, the more severe the symptoms end up being. And statistical research has shown that NFL players are more likely to be arrested for assault, domestic violence and DUIs than young men who aren't in the sport. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. But I would want to know more because if you're in a kind of, I want to say industry, I don't know if that's the right word, but like you said, where if you get injured, you have to get back on the pitch and you've kind of got that, you need to look hard and you need to look tough kind of mentality. Is that then going to also lend itself to the type of person you need to behave like? And that's why there's more domestic violence and DUIs and stuff. Or yeah, is that whole causal causal knot sort of thing is it that you've had these many knocks to the head that have caused you to become more violent and more risky taking those risky behaviors out you know I don't know it's just very very interesting though so that's well I suppose it's not that sample is it because that was that was to do with the brain disease sorry but I'd love to know more about that study because that's really really fascinating I think there is more work to look into this actually in lots of different ways and lots of different sports and we can only hypothesize about the impact of brain injury on OJ Simpson because this brain disease can only be diagnosed from an autopsy. Oh wow okay so there's not something they can look at with a scan they need to literally take your brain out to look at it. It was reported in an interview that Simpson gave at the age of 70 that he was very concerned that he might have this form of brain degeneration. He reported struggling to remember names and words some days and said that he's scared that this will impact his mental health, as it has with other friends of his from his football days. It could explain a lot in terms of the crime here. The crime was incredibly violent and clearly impulsive, as there was no attempt at a forensic clean-up. Disobition could have meant that he would have struggled to contain his anger, and the memory disturbance could mean that he might not even remember having committed a crime. As it's degenerative, it could explain why there are no reports of violence towards his first wife, which we said we'd come back to Marguerite in this episode, and I knew we were heading here. So yeah, I mean, I I can't, I still didn't look up uh, what happened to Marguerite, but you can Google it if you're interested. Um, But yeah, we we kind of um, speculated that that was a very difficult marriage for her at OJ's hands from a self-confidence point of view, potentially from an abusive point of view. But we don't know that and there weren't reports of that. But this was back in the 70s when women put up with a lot of shit like that and didn't speak out because they didn't feel that they could and they weren't supported in doing so. So just because there weren't reports of Marguerite being abused by OJ Simpson doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So I did look um, up Marguerite after we spoke because I did want to know more and I couldn't quite remember, but she, she really stood by him throughout the trial in 1995. She kind of kept herself out of the spotlight a lot, but um, she basically said, while she wouldn't, you know, like go on the stand, she wasn't going to testify or anything like that. um, She never 
and you know she never did have to testify she publicly denied there was ever any physical or emotional abuse on by on her oh. by oj during their years together and i take it all back basically she kind of she's still around and unless she's passed away quietly and nobody knows but um like i said she tried to keep herself very private and out of the media but i think a lot of what people have spoken about with their marriage is that they were a lot more equal so mm. she's black and so they were on an equal footing there straight away whereas with nicole there's obviously going to be race differences and whether or not oj um whether or not there was kind of he had that already that he was in this kind of quite racist world at that time was that something that was part of why there was violence against nicole um, so there was quite kind of this this um, equality between Marguerite mm. and OJ. And then also that she was quite well educated, whereas obviously Nicole, when she met OJ, was young and he stopped her from continuing her education. So a lot of people do kind of theorise that actually that's why there was no um, no abuse and they they were in more of a happy, obviously they still divorced and they they broke up but she publicly kind of stood by him through the trial and said he wasn't abusive mm. towards her and yeah um that's kind of what i've read and there's there's not a lot about her because she did then keep herself private and keep herself quiet because she didn't want that life and she didn't want the limelight yeah and it yeah i mean it could be as rachel says you know it's a degenerative disease so if oj simpson is suffering from this then he was okay in his 20s and early 30s when he was with Marguerite. And it was only in later life that the symptoms perhaps came to the surface. And we, we, we do, of course, know that Simpson went on to commit an armed robbery. Um, and that would, you know, that kind of uh, impulsivity, which is a symptom of, of the disease, that could be an example, couldn't it? The armed robbery is a manifestation of that symptom of impulsivity. Yeah. I think so. You know, this is this first marriage is somebody who doesn't want limelight. So when he starts getting big and more popular, of course, they're not going to their marriage isn't going to survive that because she doesn't want it. And that's all he wants. But equally, if his brain is already slight, you know, starting to have this degeneration because of all the knocks he's taken at that point, even that could be be why you know that could be the reason for the impulsivity or something but it might just be yeah they she just didn't want that life and that's why they broke up but then he he continues with the lifestyle of football playing and taking all the knocks to the head that then continue can kind of continue to cause this it's a really interesting one because it doesn't obviously um remove any culpability of his in my opinion anyway however it does help you to understand perhaps what would have led him to that point of lashing out yeah, and, I agree. and murder. Yeah, absolutely. Ron Goldman's sister Kim still bears the hurt of the loss of her brother and the media attention that surrounded the trial, including unsubstantiated claims about her brother's links to drugs gangs. She has channelled her energy into a podcast called Media Circus, which focuses on the impact of the media around high-profile crimes and the consequences this attention has on the victims and their families. And she has interviewed, among others, Amanda Knox and the mother of Matthew Shepard on the podcast. And she's also described her brother as easygoing. She said, People connected with him and related to him because he was so self-depreciating. 
He was confident in whatever he did, but he was also insecure. He was trying to figure himself out along the way. She also said that he died a hero, saying, His last act of his life really showed you exactly who he was. His dedication and commitment to his friends and the people that he loved and cared about. He didn't run. He spent the last couple of minutes of his life putting himself on the line for someone else. That is a real tribute, isn't it? What a a testament to him. It is, yeah. Nicole came across as a fun, loving woman who was well able to stand up for herself. The volatility in her marriage showed that she didn't take Simpson's controlling behaviours and attempts to dominate lying down, and she was a woman who stood up for herself. Her beauty led her to part-time modelling, but it was her love for her children which leaves a lasting impact. Despite the ordeal of losing their mother so traumatically when they were at such young ages, they were very loved by the rest of their family and were brought up out of the media spotlight. The family of Nicole worked hard to cooperate with OJ and bring the children up in a joint custody arrangement. Both children went on to have exceedingly normal lives. Sydney graduated with a degree in sociology and now runs several businesses and has built her own wealth and Justin works in real estate. Both are rumoured to be living in Tampa, in Florida. They have both chosen to continue to shun the spotlight and it's heartwarming that they managed to find happiness in their own way and away from their father's toxic reputation. And Rachel finishes by saying, I think Nicole would be proud. And I completely agree with that. I think, you know, they are a real legacy to to her and the hard work that she put in in bringing them up so well. Yeah, I'd agree there. So thank you for listening. I know it's been an epic one. Uh, I'm sure you will agree that Rachel has done a fantastic job with this. Please do check out her social media channels. Uh, She's definitely on Instagram. Uh, She is at Psyched Up Girl. Uh, So do go and give her a follow. We will be sending something very special to Rachel in the next few days as a huge thank you for this. So much work went into it. We'll be back next week with another case. So we will see you then. Bye. Bye.